Welcome. Today, we're going to be taking a journey through J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth. And here to help me navigate the landscape is philosopher, prosecutor, and fellow Tolkien fan, James Valiant. James, how are you today? I'm great. How about you, Nicholas? Fantastic. And looking forward to this discussion. So yeah. let's start off. We'll talk a little bit about your background with Tolkien. When did you first read the books? What was it that drew you to Tolkien's world? And, and how many times have you read the books over the years? Just give us a little bit of background to your relationship to this literature. Well, I read The Hobbit as a relatively small child. Hey, I must have been 11 or 12, actually, when I read The Hobbit. But it took me a, while, a little while longer to get to The Lord of the Rings, which seemed to, you know, a three book, you know, uh, uh, thing. It seemed a little more adult and intimidating to me, even, even when I was that age. So I waited a few years, but I was still a teenager when I read Lord of the Rings. And both of them made a a tremendous impact on me. And it's strange because at the very same time in my life, I was going in a very secular direction and Ayn Rand would eventually take me in the direction of romantic realism uh, with very different ideas about what literature ideally should be. Um, but I, I've come and I've reread, I have in the course of my life, I think it was in my 30s when I re read out loud both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to my mother. Uh, uh, when she wasn't feeling well, and I, I just started reading it to her. And what a wonderful experience that was, To because there's a new, you get the all the power of the language and the poetry when you read it out loud to someone. So I would highly recommend, if you, if you do enjoy Tolkien, read those books out loud to somebody. It's a unique experience because you get the all the poetic experience of the song and poetry that is such an integral part of Tolkien's universe. Yeah, for the, the things, yeah. I was just going to say one of the things that stands out for me about Tolkien's writing, he really does have a beautiful prose style, uh, an almost musical prose style in Absolutely. his in his descriptions, the choices of what he chooses to describe and how, the, the words that he selects. A master. He's an absolute well he was a specialist in the English language. He's one of the great scholars of the 20th century of the history of the English language. He translated old English material, more than a thousand years old, into modern English. He was a professor of the history of the English language. He have, you read his, have you read his translation of Beowulf? Beowulf, Sir Gawain, um, he's, yeah. he was, he's a translator and he understood that literature so well, it dramatically informed his own literature. In fact, Tolkien was such a scholar of language that he actually enjoyed just inventing a language from scratch. And part of what he did as a young man, as a very young man, was to invent the language of the elves, uh, his fictional elves. It's very much based, as, it's a fantasy, and it's very much based on fairy tales, the context of fairy tales and nursery rhymes that we, as children, we kind of grow up with. But he turns it into this sort of much more majestic uh, uh, adult sort of worldview with an, a vast integrated, almost an epic mythology. He said that other cultures had um, uh, this kind of mytho this epic mythology, and he wanted to give it the English language and the English tradition that same kind of epic to their mythology, to their, to their traditions. But he was so into language that he invented this language and understanding how languages in his 
history come to be, he realized that he would have to construct a fictional history of the elves in order to create the richness and depth that he knows you know, the, that have to be a people that split apart and had other influences and then came back together. In order to create the richness of a language, you actually have to have an actual history. So he invents a fictional historical background for the elves. And having that, these languages that he invents, this historical background that would explain the language for the elves, he now has a context, a universe. He builds a universe in which he can now tell his story. And from an objectivist standpoint, of course, we're romantic realists. And in the realist department, obviously, Tolkien is, <laughs> that's not his strong suit. He's taking us to a fantasy world where there's elves and dwarves and magical swords and dragons <laughs> and all sorts of things that occupy the world of fairy tales normally. Uh, uh, but that doesn't necessarily dismiss it from having uh, literary value, of course, so long as there's thematic some kind of allegorical, you know, there are no elves and magical uh, swords, but if they can stand in as an allegory for something, you can convey an allegorical moral message, even in fantasy, uh, like any any fable or myth can do. Um, well, that's an interesting point, because so-called genre fiction, which includes fantasy, it includes science fiction, is a little bit controversial in our community because of certain comments in the Romantic Manifesto, which suggests that that kind of fiction is perhaps on a lower level than realist fiction or historical fiction. I would dispute that. So I would, I think The Lord of the Rings is one of the few books of genre fiction that I would place on the category of truly great literature. I truly agree. great literature. I would, in my own personal pantheon, I would put it right beside Les Miserables, War and Peace. Uh, books like that in terms of the effect that it had on me uh, and in terms of the skill of the the writing the style the plot construction the characters yeah you know yeah. the let's we talked about the re realism part and the realism part is um you know i am more directly affected by Atlas Shrugged because of the realism. It's much more set in the real world and I can see more directly and I can have, a, in, in a sense, a bigger impact on me. But given that, given that, even a fantasy or science fiction can address uh, moral philosophical themes. It, when we go to the, so it does have romantic elements and that's the important thing. And crucially, there are good guys and bad guys. And it is the choices of the characters and their determination to follow through that actually drives the plot. And the plot does come to have a message. Now, Tolkien didn't do himself any favors by getting people to not look at the allegorical thematic message. A lot of people had uh, suggested he'd have been, have served in World War I, had a horrific experience, lost friends, and he came out like a lot of veterans who survived World War I to write amazing, beautiful literature uh, and, or make beautiful art. Um, and people said, well, isn't this the bad guys and the good guys in World War I or World War II? And Tolkien said, no, 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 there's no allegory here. Don't even look for allegory. In fact, he went so far as to say, the tale grew in the telling. It just sort of happened on its own, and I didn't logically construct the plot to say anything, which really obscures the fact that he does address moral issues. He does address issues like the devotion to your values, the devotion to the good guys and bad guys, really clearly, starkly made. And okay, but I see, I see allegory. 
Yeah, I see allegory as a somewhat separate consideration. Like allegory, I, I see as a subcategory of symbolism, or is related to symbolism, where the characters have some kind of, or the characters, or possibly the events have some kind of abstract meaning. I do think that a work of fiction can have a theme. It can have a plot theme or a, a more abstract philosophical theme without necessarily being allegorical. For example, I, I certainly don't think of the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged as allegories. Oh, no. Oh, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But I would point out that Ayn Rand herself used myth and allegory. Take uh, the part she cut out of We the Living, Kira's Viking, or take Anthem as such. Uh, that is almost a fantasy sci-fi, you know, let's depart from reality and take a fable that's almost an allegory. The discovery or the references, light or the references to forth. Prometheus. In that, the references exactly. To Prometheus. Oh, Ayn Rand uses classical, just as Tolkien does, she uses classical allegory all the time. If you're familiar, for example, with Plato's famous uh, myth of Gyges, the ring of Gyges that makes you invisible. So he says, well, why would you, if you could get away with it, why be moral? And of course, the ring that makes you invisible in Lord of the Rings is, a, is taken straight from the myth of Gyges. And you'll find that Tolkien does that. He mines the myths all over Europe, uh, the Eddas from Norse mythology, the Beowulf, and he understands that they had an oral, that they're sort of uh, commemorating oral tradition for the first time. So he has that orality, uh, oral, you know, transmission element in his nursery rhymes, songs, epic poems, and he'll go through each of those kind of genre, uh, which is part of his linguistic motive here. But the truth of the matter is that there are moral values. Take, for example, the character of Sam Gamgee, spoiler alert. He is the quintessential loyal friend. Uh, take Frodo, his courage and determination, no matter what psychic problems the ring is causing him. We see the nobleness of Frodo. We see the loyalty of Sam as the truest of friends who ever was. There are th but would I say that this is high romanticism addressing original philosophical themes? No, the philosophical themes are very generalized uh, moral messages that most people would already get. So, yeah, it has a, a thematic message, mostly told through allegory, but also told through the plot. Um, so I would classify it as having romantic elements, but more bootleg romantic elements in the sense that it doesn't address original new philosophical themes at a high level. Um, it's pretty straightforward that way. Uh, and a lot of it is the writing itself that you're going to enjoy. Like you say, it's the beauty of his storytelling. The, the, the man is a master of 20th century English uh, and writes astonishingly beautiful stuff. I have committed to memory certain of his poems and songs in my own head. Uh, uh, the, you know, Erendel was a mariner who tarried in Arvernian. It's an amazing verbal sound collection of, of words that tells just a glimpse of an epic poem that sounds like it was preserved in an ancient oral tradition. Um, so if you're aware of the history of language, there's all kinds of levels on which you can appreciate Tolkien. But as a young person, just as a young person, there are moral values there that you can find as well. So I think that uh, on multiple counts, um, uh, I know Tolkien was uh, a Christian person and he was deeply platonic. Uh, you can tell that in his metaphysics. You can tell that, for example, he, in his own lifetime, he didn't publish this ancient history of the elves uh, called the Silmarillion. It was only published posthumously as the sort of the background uh, for this world of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings that he's uh, it was published, it was published by his son, Christopher, right? 
he was published along with most of his unpublished writings, his notes and yeah. so forth, where Tolkien was just developing this universe, this alternate universe of Middle Earth. Uh, and when you read, though, the Silmarillion, his creation myths, oh, they're it's very, it's very the poetic allegories. <laughs> they really are. Um, uh, so an objectivist would probably have issues philosophically with that. But, you know, I would have to remind people of Leonard Peikoff's uh, uh, discussion of uh, philosophically flawed, but still uh, highly valuable literature for the objectivist. I think an objectivist can get a lot out of Tolkien, despite the fantasy elements, despite the simplicity of the moral message. Uh, I think there's so much value there uh, that I would really urge uh, people to check out at least some Tolkien if they haven't. If it's not your cup of tea, it's not your cup of tea. But if it is, you'll find that it's just language you'll come back to uh, just for the beauty of the language sometimes, truly. Yeah, I'm going to come um, back in a moment. The, I mean, in one sense. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to come back in a moment to the question of romantic elements in, in Tolkien. But uh, so one of the reasons that I would really put the Lord of the Rings on the on the level of the highest literature is it really does feel integrated, even though there's so many characters and so many events. You know, it's this sprawling action, this panoramic uh, landscape of Middle Earth, but it really all feels like it co cohesive. It really all feels like it fits together. Do you have any ideas yourself on the, the themes that the, the novel is meant to communicate in the sense of an abstract theme or a philosophical theme or message? The abstract theme, absolutely. I mean, it's stated out loud. It's beautiful. It's not one, you know, I ran in the Romantic Manifesto said, look, the plot says something. And whether the author knows it or not, the events will come, if it's a logically constructed story, it will come to a, have a theme, whether that uh, author knows it or not. Uh, Tolkien was aware of his theme, and it's not like the example Ayn Rand uses in the Romantic Manifesto of Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, where the characters talk one philosophy, but the events of the story say something completely different. Uh, Tolkien is telling a simple story in one way, although it has a lot of complex moving elements, but he knows what his theme is. His theme is good and evil. His theme is devotion to your values. His theme is even even the smallest of us can make a difference. If, we're, if we have the right grit and determination, the hobbits can overcome. The loyalty of friends is an important value to him. There are multiple theme, theme, moral themes that he's addressing uh, in this, and he actually has the characters say it out loud. When Gandalf, for example, tells Frodo, we can't choose the time that we, all we can do is, that we're born in, all we can do is choose how we deal with that. Uh, and that really wonderfully summarizes this. It is those moments, and Sam follows up on that by saying when he says, you know, I think I understand those old stories and why the great ones stuck with you, because those people had a chance of turning back, but they didn't. They kept with it because they knew, and we thought, how could the world ever be the same with so much horrible, horrible things happening? But that's, when the, when the clouds break and the light comes, it'll shine all the brighter. So he will have his characters actually state the uh, philosophical themes that we're watching trans transpire in the events. So in that sense, he's integrated uh, with his actual plot and the philosophy that his uh, protagonists are uh, articulating. Unlike question, Star Wars, for example. <laughs> yeah, we, that, that's, that's another discussion. But I, I think, yes. <laughs> I think the, question, the question of choice, the question of volition, to what extent do the characters choose what they do, what happens to them? I think that's also very central. And I've, I've had Thank some you. debates about this with other objectivists. 
I think Tolkien is not perfectly consistent on the question of free will versus determinism. There are certain moments, certain things, even very late in the narrative, which suggest a kind of a fatalistic or deterministic worldview. But in general, uh, I do think that the story and I do think the characters fall on the side of free will. Do you have a position on that? It's the test of the ring. The ring is a test for every character goes by and some people choose wrong. Some people fall to the allure of the ring and some people resist. And so we see the moment of choice with several of the characters. Gandalf, this powerful wizard, was offered by Frodo the ring, or again, spoiler alerts if you don't know the story or seen the movie, he's offered by Frodo the ring and Gandalf says, no, do not give me the ring. I would turn into a, 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 a totally evil thing. Uh, Galadriel has this choice. She actually was this powerful elf uh, queen who doesn't return to Valinor. And she's sort of on the moral edge of things in any event. Her choice to reject the ring uh, actually is, in effect, her ultimate redemption. Uh, other characters, uh, uh, like the wizard Saruman. Uh, he is a wizard like Gandalf, but he is sucked into the lure of the power of the ring and becomes a mega villain. Or even among humans, you've got the 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 Prince Aragorn who refuses the the ring, and you've got Prince Boromir of Gondor. He falls into the and so he see it's a choice, and people can he shows people choosing either one, and it's that free will that is driving the plot. It is every time Frodo considers, do I turn back? Do I keep going? Is I gotta keep doing this? If we, see, we feel it from the inside of Frodo even, this choice, volition, which is central to romantic uh, literature according to Ayn Rand, is central to the story of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm gonna consider in a moment the status of the Lord of the Rings as romantic fiction. Before we do that, let's check in with Daniel and see if we have any comments or super chats from our audience. We have a super chat from Wes. Thank you so much. He says, can't watch this live, but I'm excited to watch this later. I'm a big fantasy fan. And Thank we you. also have a super chat from Ian Meerkat. He says, as a Potterhead and a Throny, somehow I skipped over Lord of the Rings. It's on my list, though. Oh, oh, my friend, those things would not exist but for Tolkien. Tolkien is the uh, fountainhead of that kind of literature. And in my view, uh, the extent I, I'm not a big fantasy fan in general, I have to say, when it becomes magic swords for its own sake, you know, this, these fantasy elements existing for their own sake, it gets really boring quick for me. If there isn't some thematic element, if there isn't some driving story, isn't that beautiful language and elements to go with something with some meaning. So I'm not a big fantasy fan, but a lot of it is just derivative, absolutely derivative. As to other fantasy though, which the first questioner uh, uh, did ask about, there are certain fantasy writers who are influenced by Ayn Rand no less. Terry Goodkind, the late Terry Goodkind, for example, wrote a whole series of fantasy books dramatically inspired by the philosophy of Ayn Rand. I myself would also recommend the book Crimson by the author Warren Fay, my co-author on Creating Christ, very Ayn Rand influenced uh, philosophical. And here it's a much more elevated philosophical theme, again, with Terry Goodkind that you're gonna find. So Crimson by Warren Fay or the novels of Terry Goodkind. And there you'll see objectivist philosophy being integrated by fantasy novels into a more integrated approach to it. 
Fantastic recommendations. Let's consider now the status of Tolkien's work as romantic fiction. And Tolkien himself described The Lord of the Rings as a romantic, a heroic romance. That's the term he used, heroic romance. But that's a little bit complicated by the fact that the term romance, romantic, has a complicated etymology going back to the Middle Ages. The original meaning of romance has to do with the sense in which the Arthurian legends are romances, you know, the, the age of chivalry and that sort of atmosphere that which is that's really part of what Tolkien captures in his particular writing the sense in which objectivism uses the term romantic the way we apply it to the writings of Hugo the writings of Dostoevsky that's a little bit different can you explain a little bit about the distinction between these two forms of romanticism the sort of mid medieval or heroic romance versus romantic realist fiction of the 19th century there's an intrinsicism. There's a religious intrinsicism to that older literature. And that definitely is the literature that very much inspired uh, Tolkien. Uh, some of the stuff like you're talking about the Arthurian legends, La Morte d'Arthur and things like that. The, it's later medieval stuff than this early English stuff he translated, but it was still influencing him. In fact, you can, like I say, you can go through the, uh, the um, early mythologies of the various cultures of Europe and see that Tolkien picking elements that he likes from each of them, for whether it's the Norse Eddas or, the, or Beowulf or, or Greek philosophy and mythology. Uh, he'll do that. And a lot of what Tolkien is doing, like I say, seems to be a linguistic end in itself. He'll drop into an epic poem, or he'll drop into a nursery rhyme, or he'll drop into a song. So that he's showing you, it's almost like he's on purpose showing you the furniture of different elements of uh, a different genre of early literature and how oral transmission became written material. There's a there's a fantasy romantic element there, but it is not the plot focused. Although El Tolkien has a plot, he is he, and there is a plot theme to it. So in that sense, it does have. He is addressing philosophical issues. Just so I'd more classify it as bootleg romanticism, more like a James Bond movie, which assumes values. But Tolkien is very much assuming that you know that loyalty, determination, uh, being a good friend, all those other things that we're talking about, making the right choice when it's difficult, uh, we assume the virtue of all that. He's not asking you to think like a moralist. He's assuming a certain morality and sort of building in this simple morality. But nonetheless, like 19th century romanticism, and unlike La Morte d'Arthur, there is a plot. And the plot is driven by the choices, the free will choices of the characters, and it comes to a theme. Um, uh, it's not the realism part, as I say, but like uh, Hugo and Dostoevsky, he's using plot to uh, express a philosophical theme. And it's integrated. It's an integrated story where the elements themselves are Mostly, like I say, he'll take detours for purely linguistic reasons, which sort of cloud this whole issue, because it does then seem like when he's doing that more like a medieval uh, romance where the language itself is an end in itself. Um, and uh, Ayn Rand did not think any element in literature was an end in itself and that every factor must be controlled by the novelist, by a good novelist. And in that regard, you can really see someone like Dostoevsky being a master like Ayn Rand was, controlling each element to make this and a, 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 an interesting, thought-provoking, new philosophical theme, or at least a philosophical theme on a highly abstract level. Um, in that sense, it's more like bootleg romanticism, but it does have a plot, a specific and integrated plot, despite these other elements that cloud it, I think. Um, so it's neither realism 
nor is it high romanticism in Ayn Rand's sense uh, uh, for these other reasons, these clouded reasons. But on the other hand, I would say it is in some ways akin to 19th century romanticism in that it has a specific plot and that's the choices of the characters drive it and it comes to a specific integrated uh, thematic meaning. I can't resist throwing in this one more question, particularly given the subject of my recent Ocon talk. A question that people often ask me, given you know, the presence of a ring of power, is there some connection between Richard Wagner and Tolkien, between the Ring of the Nibelung and the Lord of the Rings? I would say, to the best of my knowledge, it's not a direct connection. I wouldn't suggest that Tolkien was necessarily influenced by Wagner's work. I do think that both artists were inspired by a common mythology, the medieval, uh, the uh, you mentioned the Eddas, you know, the the uh, the Norse sagas, the Nibelungen Lied. So I think there's a common ancestry, but I don't think there's a direct connection between the two. Would you agree with that? Yes, and I would think that I would classify them as belonging to the same general movement. I wouldn't associate, uh, you know, Wagner's anti-Semitism or politics with uh, Professor Tolkien, who I think was better than that. But on the other hand, uh, it is part of the same thrust of 19th century. The, you know, what Romanticism became in the 19th century went away from reason in a strong way, as Ayn Rand describes. And you can see these Gothic, this return of Gothic romances directly, as we were talking about before. Medieval, and medievalism. Yeah. Medievalism and, and the whole Gothic uh, atmosphere. Well, there was also a, a sense of nationalism uh, and Wagner's work inspired by pre-Christian myths of the Germanic people uh, was uh, the same sort of thing in, in that uh, Tolkien was doing in literature. He specifically wanted to have an English epic, an English myth, and he thought that there was some kind of gap that uh, most other cultures had this sort of, had an epic myth like the Eddas in, of, of the Norse or the epics of the Greeks, and he wanted to have an English myth of similar dimension and scope and depth. And so in the literature realm, he's doing something very similar to what Wagner was doing in the music realm. Yeah. Let's check in with Daniel one more time. Do we have any other comments or super chats? And do we have any announcements before we wrap up today? So first, thank you, Free Trade, for, for your super sticker. Also, thank you, Jeff, uh, for another super sticker. And thank you, Jamie or Jaime, for your super sticker as well. And the upcoming shows in uh, about four minutes, we have the reality show. Link is in the chat. Make sure to join us. The main topic is the end of WeWork. We this company providing spaces for people to work in and at the moment it's 100th of the size they used to be interesting okay thank you daniel we're looking forward to those episodes if you enjoyed today's episode um we're hoping uh, maybe next week james and i can do a discussion of star wars as a kind of a follow-up to our discussion of tolkien today so stay tuned for that what do you think of that james Oh, I'd love to do that. That's, that's another thing that I've considered from this exact standpoint, <laughs> you know, Star Wars as drama. Uh, and is it romantic? And does it, it really fulfill uh, the aesthetic requirements, for example, that Ayn Rand would lay out for really fine literature? What's the storytelling like in Star Wars? Uh, and I think that's got to be a great discussion. So let's, let's have that, Nicholas. All right, excellent. Any final thoughts on Tolkien? Uh, you know, I think he was a good man. He was a brilliant scholar. His literature, I think, is magnificent and will last forever because of the power of it, uh, despite 
uh, the differences with Ayn Rand's conception of romantic realism, uh, I would urge people to check it out. Like I say, it may not be your cup of tea, but if it is, you're going to love that cup of tea. Promise. Yeah. And if you have children, read them The Hobbit out loud. They'll love it. Yes. Good, good way to introduce young people to great literature. James, thank you for a stimulating discussion as always. Thank you to our viewers and supporters of the Ayn Rand Center UK. Uh, until next time, I wish you all the best of premises.